0: Most cities have nicknames, and one that you may have heard of for the city of Boston is that it's the Athens of America. If you've heard that, or, or even if you haven't, or if you've heard something else called the Athens of, just like some things are called the Paris of, you are right to be skeptical, but if any city deserves such a name in the United States, it's it's got to be today, it's got to be Boston. There are so many institutions of higher education, so many learned people collected there, that it's kind of hard to gainsay the idea that it is one of the, if you want to say it this way, one of the smartest or most intellectual places in the United States. And it's earned that title from long time ago, right. Right? since the early American publishing industry on its own got started basically at the same time in Boston in a big way as it did in New York City. Boston has collected intellect and promoted it and this is before Harvard was anything other than a denominational college and before the Massachusetts Institute of Technology was even founded. It has been something like our Athens and that means that it was a thought leader But let's put the idea of Athens just in Bible terms really quickly so that you can begin to think about it differently and think about it in the way that its founders thought about it. When we've done any of these cities episodes, you come to understand that one thing about a place is that although it does change and the amount of change and the rate of change probably pick up almost anywhere you can think of, the closer you get to the present. That change is actually less determinative of what you see around you and what you're dealing with than perhaps people think. That certain preoccupations and certain interests reappear in the same places time after time after time. And if we did a regions sort of episode or series, we would probably do one on the Ohio River Valley and see what th- strange things pop up there over and over and over again. Maybe. Maybe we will do that if you are so desirous. That Boston from the first was not just a, a place to talk or a place to discuss things as if like the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, they rejoiced in nothing else so much as always seeing or hearing something new. There is a reality to that, although it's certainly debatable how much debate has anything to do with institutions of higher education at this point the recent flare-ups about free speech and the nature of free speech and academic freedom and political expression by students and faculty particularly at harvard and the resignation of their very recently inaugurated president claudine gay really show you a certain amount of corruption and I, i don't just mean that in some sort of financial sense in higher education but a corruption of the very thing for which such institutions exist the reason that originally plato went outside the walls of athens he was near athens but outside the walls away from the specifically political and everyday concerns in order to have something academic that is discussed in the grove of academe where you could Think thoughts without worrying about what what they meant or whether the the funding or the donations would dry up if you said them. That if you're going to have an Athens, you have to be able to pursue truth without worrying too specifically about what's going to happen if you find a truth someone else doesn't want you to find. It may be that Boston was like that or that Boston was intended to be that way, but I would suggest that you look, and you could look for similar ideas on the seal of Harvard College. You could look for similar ideas on the seal of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You could look for expressions about finding truth or pursuing truth or discovering truth in lots of places associated with Boston. You might also think about Boston not so much as Acts 17, but maybe uh, as later on, with Ephesus, that it has an incredible sense of civic pride and a deep sense of itself. But I want to start not with Athens or with Ephesus, if you want to think of it as now degraded or devoted to pagan ideals, but rather the way that its founders actually thought of it. And remember that Boston is not Plymouth, it's a separate colony. Now that, that colony seal is w- sort of a the, the father, I guess you might say, of what you'd see on the Massachusetts state flag today. So you can go ahead and open that up. But hopefully if you have the artwork for this episode, you can see the original seal, the inspiration for what's today Massachusetts's seal and, and on its flag, therefore. And that seal is the seal of the Massachusetts Bay Company. They were a group of people who, like the Virginia Company and like the East India Company and like lots of other companies, got together in order to found a venture. They were, in the strictest sense of the word, they were adventurers. They were going to do something new together. And in doing that new thing, they had a very definite idea of what they were going to do. What it meant that a new world had been discovered or would be, and this is a word they frequently used, both for what they were doing, we would say religiously, but also what they were doing Politically, and that is the word plantation. It's a word that actually used to be, and the name of one of the colonies of New England, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantations. They didn't really use the word colony, and they didn't call themselves colonists. Every once in a while, they might call themselves settlers, but they generally called what they were doing plantations, and they called themselves planters that had nothing to do with which crops you were raising or how much land you owned or something like that. It had to do with what you were engaged in, that you were doing something new. It's They use the word planter in, in something like the way we would use the word pioneer. But whereas that word pioneer has the idea for us that you're always going to go westward, 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 westward. For them, it, it didn't necessarily, and, and the word plant because it's an image used for the kingdom of God throughout the Bible, the word plant came up over and over again and they returned to it and they called what they were doing a a plantation. The plantation that they started in what came to be called Boston after one of the major sources of immigration to the Massachusetts Bay Colony was not like what was being done farther to the south in Plymouth. In Plymouth, they had come to get away. They were separatists. They were engaged in a project in Plymouth roughly 8 to 10 years earlier than Boston that was a lot like what a lot of people envision today where you will band together and get away. Boston wasn't meant to be like that exactly. In a really neat little trick, they got their royal charter in 1629. And the charter was given to the Massachusetts Bay Company and it specified like charters for companies of adventurers always did, when, how often they would meet and what they would have to decide about and how many people would be on the board and and their qualifications and things like that. And such charters exist for almost anything that was being done really throughout the world between roughly the 16th century and the 19th century when this exploration or this this world of plantation was something in which generally groups engaged and only indirectly governments states were not directly involved in these things and and what the separatists had ensured with the blessing you might remember of the virginia company massachusetts being sort of a place they they stumbled upon not the place they intended to be is that the P- the Plymouth Pilgrims were there in order to be away and, and being there to be left alone. Even with the earlier start and even with their, let's say, their definite sense of what they were doing, they never really quite succeeded the way Boston did. 200 years later when there were registers in the port of Havana, Cuba for where sailors from other countries had come from. There were various options that you can imagine England and America and Germany and Norway and so on. Where did these sailors come from? But in addition to American, there was also a way of describing a sailor and that was as Bostonesa, meaning (laughs) meaning he was from Boston. There was nothing similar for Plymouth. Boston wholly eclipsed it so how did it do that what's interesting is that the massachusetts bay company did not think of what they were doing as for themselves or even only for their posterity although it certainly was they thought of what they were doing and going away and in leaving something really crucially unspecified in that charter that they received from the king and that was where the meetings of the massachusetts bay company were to take place So it didn't say that they had to take place in London. So possibly they could just have their meetings in the place they were going to settle. Knowing that, it would really matter what they wanted because they were the ones who could determine what was going on. And what they put on their seal was an image of an Indian, but the Indian was not speaking in Latin the way words on seals often are, the way, in fact all the lettering around him is, talking about Nova Anglia, New England. But what was being said was spoken in the language that they spoke. And he spoke in the words of the Bible that they used, which was not the King James version. It was called the Geneva Bible, which had been produced during the Marian exile of English Protestants during the time between Elizabeth and the incoming of James. In that geneva bible there's a little passage here from acts chapter 16 that i want to read to you and it's about saint paul therefore they passed through mysia and came down to troas where a vision appeared to paul in the night there stood a man of macedonia and prayed him saying come into macedonia and help us and after he had seen the vision immediately we prepared to go into macedonia being assured that the lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them then went we forth from troas and with a straight course came to Samothrace, and the next day to neapolis and from thence to philippi which is the chief city in the parts of macedonia and whose inhabitants came from rome to dwell there and we were in that city abiding certain days that last verse, verse 12 there in acts chapter 16 you'll find if you look it up in the king james they actually describe Philippi explicitly as a colony. So Boston was not intended to be Athens necessarily in the same way that Harvard was not intended to be an international university of fame and or ill repute if you will but it was intended to produce a gospel ministry that would spread the gospel in those places because the Indian on the seal of the company says come over and help us. He is an American Macedonian and Boston was an American Philippi now you have probably heard the phrase used in the context of American history a city set on a hill and you probably heard it almost as a kind of boast you could call up before you listen any farther a piece of Reagan era patriotism that you probably have heard before at least somewhere I can Remember being at a birthday party at the Chuck E. Cheese in suburban Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and hearing this song on the radio and Chuck E. Cheese was singing along in his animatronic way. And the song is Lee Greenwood, his uh, Proud to be an American. You can go ahead and listen to that if you want to, but probably you don't even need to go find it. You, You know what it sounds like. If you look that up or if you think back to that time, you might think that that phrase taken from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, A City Set on a Hill, would be used by people like the Puritans because you know, they sound like bad guys to begin with. That word Puritan, Puritanical doesn't sound very good or, or very adventurous for that matter. It sounds like somebody who doesn't want other people to have fun. He's probably a legalist, right? That word Puritan, they didn't use that phrase, a city set upon a hill. They didn't use that as a matter of pride. They didn't they didn't think that their American Philippi was going to be anything terribly amazing unless they were faithful. The idea was, and, and the phrase was originally used by their first governor to warn them that this could all really easily fall apart. There was a sense of fragility that we hear in the story of Plymouth and how many did not survive the first winter there, but we rarely hear in the sense of, or the story such as we might know it of Boston or of its hinterlands, you might say, which become in time all or almost all of what would come to be New England. When they thought of a city set on a hill, or they thought of the responsibility that they had for plantation, it was a responsibility that was distinct from the Plymouth separatists, because they had not, and this will be crucial as we talk about a couple other cities afterward, unlike the guys in Plymouth, they had not decided to separate themselves definitively from the corruption of England. They not only were in communication, They also remained connected, and technically, their churches, congregationalist, though they were governed in a way that they understood to be biblical rather than government by bishops, and that's a story probably for another time, they understood themselves still to be members of the Church of England. They had not split from anything, but they were planting something that would be uniquely pure. When you look at history, it's generally the absolute easiest thing to do, to laugh at other people's good intentions, because you have enough time to see things that at the time, when the good intention was first forming itself into a plan, they could not see. As everybody sees better in hindsight, also God's providence in hindsight, that you can't see at the present. When they were looking to plant They were looking to establish two things at the same time and this is why they felt the responsibility to be so grave and even at times heavy that is they were not putting themselves in a position of let's say government over the rest of the church of england nor putting themselves apart from the rest of the church of england they had to be faithful on their own and they were answerable directly to the lord for that Mm -hmm. in the same way (laughs) that the king could not intervene in the way that they governed themselves because the charter didn't say where the meetings were supposed to happen. So it turned out that all the meetings of the Massachusetts Bay Company would happen in what would become Boston. And the responsibility to plant is always heavier than the responsibility to inherit. You'll notice that if we talk about planting, And it's a word that Paul uses for churches and that they use both for churches of Christ as well as for their form of government and for the governments that sprung up everywhere that they went in New England. If that's partly on us, it also means that we have a grave thing on our hands. We actually live with eternity in view. And that's a lot to handle it, it, in a way it, it's so much heavier weightier than the pursuit of wealth or pleasure that we've identified at the heart of several other places places that are where they are not necessarily for their scenery or any particular religious reason but simply because it's rational to put a transportation network centered around where chicago is or it is a great place to put a ship into port at where Yerba Buena, now called San Francisco, is. So their city was a city set on a hill, and that was no joke. At the same time, the city set on a hill was also a place that could expect God's blessing. Faithfulness receives blessing from a faithful God who is faithful to his word. And this is the origin, if you haven't picked up on it before, of the idea of covenant that we've talked about in terms of almost any human group obviously of churches but also of families and in this case not only of families and of churches but of governments one way to know if you have ancestors in the vicinity of boston in antiquity as it were american antiquity is to see if they were presented as either freemen that is citizens of the massachusetts bay colony or if they were brought in as church members where they will even if they're female be listed by their names because to be a church member was also to be a family member and to be a citizen a resident of the colony a planter maybe that's heavy but maybe it also may be covenanting with such a god who is faithful great things could happen that covenanted city was you have to understand not very big and i don't just mean in the beginning i mean all the way to and through the time when people are calling it without a shred of irony the athens of america if you look at the early american republic the time after our independence you'll find a lot of people worrying, and no one more than people either raised, educated, perhaps even born in Boston. You'll find them worrying several generations after that first planting about how big the world is getting and how big America is getting. That there's just a certain scale at which life becomes impossible, faithfulness becomes impossible. So when you think about scale, Don't just think about whether you like little things or you have hobbit-like tendencies in yourself. You like to be cozy or not to go much of anywhere or not to do much of anything or not to meet much of anyone new, right? Some of us have those tendencies and some of us don't, and some of us have a little perhaps of mutually contradictory tendencies. All of that, all of that is as may be. I would say that this group as a group, the group that at this time is still called Puritans or is called New England men, or will be called in time Yankees, and as we've talked about in various places on the podcast before, we'll put their stamp on America in a big way across the whole continent from there on out. They are not particularly, you might say, hobbit-like in their tendencies. They tend to roam far afield to see many things, somewhat like the French in Quebec. But unlike the French in Quebec, they tend to stay when they roam, And they will be instrumental in the founding of almost every state in the Union just about west of Arkansas and certainly anywhere north of Kentucky. So they will roam from there, but the people back at home will worry about whether a republic, and they're calling it a republic by then, by the 1780s and 1790s, whether a republic, and you could worry about other kinds of things besides forms of government, whether a republic can hold together, whether a group can hold together if it is too big and too spread out. There's a sense in which the answer seems obvious. Because if you go back to the beginning, you'll notice that Boston, although it came to dominate for reasons that we'll explain in a little bit, Boston did not expect absolutely everyone to answer to them. There were exceptions to that there were times when they went down with a guy who failed to be able to stick around in boston named roger williams they went down to what is now called rhode island not providence plantations anymore rhode island and they went down there and they wondered if you know i think you might be on our land here mr williams but they generally didn't do that instead what they did was they were very effective at allowing people with a standard form of government and with a standard form of church to go elsewhere and to plant, as it were, new Bostons. So you will find in America places actually named New Boston, but you will find places that were New Bostons without having the name. You will find Hartford, Connecticut, and you will find parts of Long Island, and you will find lots of other places, Springfield, Massachusetts, and parts of Maine and New Hampshire. And in time, Couple generations after the Massachusetts Bay Company seal, you will find something like Vermont. And what is remarkable is the homogeneity of these places, even though they're all self governing, little republics. A lot like the Greeks, which they recognize because they generally knew Greek, not only the ministers, but certainly the leaders knew greek and so they they knew these things and they knew that there had been a lot of little republics generally leagued together when faced by foreign pressure but otherwise squabbling but if invaded by the canadians or the british or if new york wanted to claim title to vermont the new england men los postonesos the Cubans would call them would band together and they would all be from Boston for those purposes and then go back to arguing when left alone. Because what they would found were little replicas of Boston, little towns where there was a church and there was a town meeting and there was argument about these things and there was leadership by an implicit and in time explicit aristocracy, generally the folks who were college educated, sent to Harvard, or sent later to Yale, or sent even later to Dartmouth, a place founded to evangelize the Indians specifically. And that that aristocracy, by means of the town meeting and through the church particularly, would govern and lead them in war and lead them in peace. And the pattern was followed time after time after time. There is almost no city in America that has been better at reproducing itself than Boston, whether you think of Hartford or Burlington or anywhere else as particularly Bostonian, well, at least in the beginning, it was. Because the idea was that you have to keep a certain scale, and that men need to govern themselves. This goes into something I think a little bit deeper than we commonly give it credit for and that is the importance of calvinism not our caricature of it that we sometimes have in our own ranks but the actual practice of it the way that it works out not necessarily to make everyone anxious all of the time but to make them instead being the elect of god instead rather amazingly confident confident of their abilities and looking to plant or to colonize in a world that is open to them. Remarkably, despite maybe what you have thought or heard about the history of Calvinism, the guys who are most apt to be interested in evangelizing American Indians in early American history are all Calvinists. I suppose they're searching for the elect, but they were Finding that out in their own language in a way that really would not be equaled in the depth of knowledge of Indian languages or of Indian life until maybe the Moravians came around later on in the 18th century. And our first American book, right alongside the Bay Psalm book, is the Indian Bible that the missionary John Eliot put together. Almost no people more disproportionately fruitful in producing missionaries down through the 19th century, where you can find in time, three or four generations after someone came over on a ship called something like the Lion's Whelp, that was a real ship, his great-great-grandson would be sent off to somewhere like Hawaii or Southeast Asia or Africa to preach the gospel and to learn the language. That legacy was something that you would find not only over and over again, but you would also find spread in a coherent way throughout the area controlled by the Bostonians. This is perhaps the closest thing that we've ever had in American history to what you might call a city-state. A city-state is not necessarily completely geographically limited just to that area in the way that Today, your, your best analogy for a city-state, if you want to call it this, would be Singapore. Or in a previous time before Chinese rule, something like Macau or Hong Kong, or in southern China, living on its own, very much oriented to the sea. And it, it's true that there are places like that, and that Boston has often been a place like that, but the difference is singapore doesn't control a whole lot besides itself and macau and hong kong don't even now control themselves a real city-state in an ancient sense like an athens or an ephesus or a philippi would control not only itself but also its hinterland such that foreigners who can't really tell the difference would confuse that person for being from boston if he sort of sounded like he was from boston even if he were from worcester Or Nashua. How does that confusion work? It works because Boston networked itself. It did not necessarily seek directly to rule everything, but it networked itself because the colonies that would come out from it were always in communication with it, always back and forth the colony of Massachusetts Bay, of course, itself being governed from Boston, that's simple enough. So, if you were somewhere in the what is now, you know, sort of the northern two thirds, and all the way to the New York border of what's now Massachusetts, sure, you would be governed directly from Boston. That makes all kinds of sense. But in time, and and without really having to do much, Boston came to subsume Plymouth to its south, and also. What would come to be the Hartford and New Haven colonies, which would, along with Long Island, be a sort of Yankee world, and two of those three would turn into Connecticut. Because the way to extend your power, if you are a city-state, is to not so much force people as make it extremely attractive to adhere to you. This doesn't have a lot to do with its particular form of government, replicated though that may have been. It doesn't even necessarily have to do with the fact that Boston is a good place to put a city. It has the geographic advantages, or especially commerce, almost any seaport has to have, quite obviously. It also has to do with a certain uniformity of opinion. That, if you were in Boston, you could rely on the idea that the man in Hartford, or the man in... Nashua or the man in Burlington would come to have the same ideas that you had and would therefore react to something like a British invasion or an Indian war or whatever the threat or difficulty was in about the same ways that you did. And that homogeneity is something that would be extended across the country. But it depended on a relatively small group of people to have to have all those instincts together if they lost those things or if lots of new people came in well then that would obviously be quite a problem long before boston became a place with an accent probably a little bit more determined by irish (laughs) than anyone would ever have envisioned in 1640 or so long before that new england had come to have its own problems Because the homogeneity that I've described, dependent as it was, particularly on religion and and something that was basically just an outgrowth of religion for all intents and purposes in early New England, and that was education. Depending as it did on religion and education for that uniformity of opinion and that clarity of action that would occur in any kind of crisis. Well, the religion had its own crisis. Because in the first generation, and this is true for Boston and Plymouth and Hartford and many other such places, in the first generation, you could rely on the fact that everyone was almost equally motivated, almost. <laughs> Not entirely, but, but close enough. And that when they came from wherever they came, mostly in eastern and southeastern England, That they would come to New England and they would be motivated to be members of the church and upright citizens and to get along in the manner of self-government that New England rather distinctively had. And for the most part, they did. Where that began to collapse within New England itself, and we'll exclude Rhode Island for our own purposes for next time, because we'll describe Rhode Island at some greater length because it's a a lot more like what we became than the rest of New England was. But what began to collapse was the idea that the covenant had to be entire. The whole pastoral problem, I mean, really rather specifically, from roughly the middle of the 17th century into the middle of the 18th, when although established church was still largely the rule in Boston and its hinterlands, the force of that had largely collapsed for everyday purposes. Because the problem was, do you have to be all the way into the covenant? Do you have to be baptized and have assumed all the duties of a congregational member? Do you have to present evidence of having been truly converted? Do you have to go through all the things to get into something that's supposed to be for everyone? that back in england when they were just a subset of the church of england only some people went through and that voluntarily in order to be more sincere or godlier godly was probably the absolute favorite adjective of them from about 1550 all the way to 1750 and probably beyond if you could pick the godly through the fact that they had had a conversion and committed themselves then what do you do when you were supposed to have been born godly what does it mean to have been born godly in a place like Windsor, Connecticut? What is I mean, do you have to be all the same ways that your grandfather was when he got there? What precisely do you have to do? And can you be godly if you're mostly sort of an Indian trader and wandering around Indian territory, such as they did from the first? That's how they made their money. Well, these are all good questions, but it's it's hard to know. It's really hard to know if your children or grandchildren will care in the same ways that you do and about the same things. I mean, it's quite possible. It's obviously natural about certain things that they react to things in the way that you do or or think about them in some of the same ways that you do, but because they also receive certain parts of their lives as givens or granted's or norms that for you were amazing discoveries unheard of things that you found out later but your, your kid is always taken for granted how do they handle that and how do you have a church that's for everybody when not everybody necessarily wants to be part of the church there were various solutions some more or less satisfactory for my part for all these sorts of questions seems to have been a lot easier to have been a missionary to the Indians than to have to please everyone in Boston. Ironic, then, that probably the greatest preacher produced by this whole milieu, Jonathan Edwards, called by Robert Jensen, America's theologian, not necessarily in a Lee Greenwood kind of a way, but just as a matter of fact, that Jonathan Edwards spent his whole life among these things, among, in fact, the the subset of Boston descendants called, we mentioned them earlier, the River Gods in the Connecticut River Valley in Connecticut and Western Massachusetts, that he got into such trouble at long last after all his achievements and writing and revivals, and and of course, you know, you need revivals because people slide away from the covenant, that after all this, He had to end his life. Couldn't even take up the job at Princeton. So functionally ended his life as a missionary to the Indians. Because in some ways, the pressure to preach to the one who says, come over and help us is just a lot easier than having to manage who's in or who's out of the covenant. And if you've ever wondered about members who are baptized but don't come or don't come when you think they should or don't come often enough or have a spot in the cemetery next to the church, but don't really seem to have done anything except paid for it, then you have the same problem too. One of the tricks you can do if you're a Christian that's not like the kind of Christian under discussion, whether I were talking about Roman Catholics in Maryland or Puritans in New England or Salzburger Lutherans in Georgia, is that you say, well, I wouldn't make that mistake because that's not my theology. I'm not... I'm not into covenant theology or I'm not into baptismal regeneration like those Catholics in Maryland or whatever it is that that you can distance yourself from. The problem is it may be that the forms of Christian life are so common to Christ's people that they pop up over and over again under different terms. But the question of a, a covenant and whether you're in or out of the covenant could, could and very often is, just called church membership with all of its problems in the present day. And the difficulty for New England is a difficulty almost any Christian state is going to face, which is, we're a Christian state, what does that mean? Is such a thing possible? If you say no, well, what do you do with the state? And if you say yes, well, what do you do with the Christians? Especially when they don't behave like they deserve that noun. Not even on the level of showing up for church the thing that benefited boston throughout its early history down to and and we'll we'll end uh, somewhere around the civil war for reasons i hope are clear but the thing that benefited boston was that it was threatened at first it was threatened not as much with starvation as plymouth had been but with with being caught up in a in a web of fighting that vastly predated them The Indians in and around particularly southern New England had gone through a a massive period of epidemics in roughly the 10 years before the Plymouth Colony had been settled. And because of that, their population was drastically reduced. And when both Plymouth showed up, but also when the Bostonians showed up later on 1629, 1630, they were welcomed pretty much immediately by the various tribes in their areas, including the Wampanoags because they brought things that would be helpful in the wars that the Indians were waging. And this is, this is pretty key. I think for understanding almost anything about Indian life and Indian Wars and Indian culture and Indian loss throughout American history is that if you don't take the Indians as actual human beings, with their own interests you don't actually understand what's going on and very often we don't we kind of talk about the indians like they are you know nice nice older couple in their house and somebody breaks in and steals all their stuff <laughs> well they had their own ideas and they were stealing <laughs> they were stealing stuff from other people too from the perspective of massachusetts bay their thinking was a legal term They used over and over again, coming from the Middle Ages, and that is called vacuum domicilium, or you could say empty space. It's the empty space argument, meaning the Indian population was so low, and it was, it had been a lot larger in say about 1600. The Indian population is so low, and they use the land mostly for hunting, that you know we can just we can just settle this because. The the world is meant, I'm just presenting their argument, the world is meant for men to exercise dominion. And if the Indians are not exercising dominion, if they are not capable of plantation, then we should do it. So that was, that was the English side, that was the Bostonian side, that was the New England side. And from the Indians' perspective, the men in Boston had a lot of valuable things that would help them conquer other tribes. So I think if you begin to think about Boston as another tribal village to begin with, it's a lot easier to understand the way that the Indians thought about it and why they allied and why they traded. And the means of their trade was something that you got the raw materials for largely from southern New England, from Rhode Island, and from Connecticut particularly. And that was the beads called, when they're in trade, wampum, in the same way that you take shells and they would be turned into wampum like you might take metals and turn them into coins what boston did that brought it much greater power than anywhere else in new england and certainly than new amsterdam had with the dutch settlements a little bit later on in the 17th century was that they turned wampum into an industry they turned wampum production into an industry the indians had used it as a means of exchange The Bostonians basically figured out how to be better currency traders than anybody else. And that made them powerful because it was a means of exchange for any tribe with tribes all the way as far north as the Abenaki or the Mi'kmaq in what's now Maine and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And as far west, we think, as the what we call the Iroquois or the Osani in upstate New York, as well as with more local tribes. They basically got more currency and had more trading relationships than anybody else that was unstable that led also to fights with people and usually in any colonial war as well as in our revolution as well as in our civil war you'll find that different groups of indians fight on different sides where whites fight on different sides of different groups of indian wars especially early on because they're all just sort of, in the whole scheme of things, they're all just different tribes (laughs) with their own motivations. And Boston's motivation was always twofold, just like its plantation was. Their motivation was to convert. So the Indians who actually become Boston-like themselves will come to be called the praying Indians, settled in their own villages, a lot of them in southeastern Massachusetts in time. Of course, they would be defended because they were now Christians. Everyone else was up for grabs, but the ultimate loyalty was to one's own fellow planters. And in that, Hartford and Boston, as much as they might disagree, or a Yale graduate and a Harvard graduate, as much as they might disagree, they would agree on that. This sense of solidarity was preserved no matter how far away from home they got. That city-state founded on the wealth of wampum, would do something long before the revolution that was something like a revolution itself and and not half so hidden as the idea that the Massachusetts Bay Company charter did not specify where the board meetings were supposed to happen. They would produce something called a pine penny or a pine coin or a pine shilling most often. And that pine shilling had a tree on it that would come to mean a lot to all of New England, but especially to Boston. Those being, in some way, however much you don't want to hear this, if you have a New England identity that isn't a Boston one, for sports purposes, probably the same thing still going on, I would remind you, though. That pine shilling would get you money, goods, whatever you wanted, only in and around Boston. It was, a, it was a local currency, and on it was the pine tree that became New England's fame. It was, in fact, one of the grievances that Boston, as well as all the rest of New England, would unite so vociferously in having against the British. And the reason that, the, that New England, or Boston and its hinterlands, would be the absolute bulwark of support for the American Revolution Because that pine marked out by the British Navy in time, once they tried to govern Boston a lot more closely than they had in the beginning, for use only by the Royal Navy. So this tree is standing somewhere in Boston or its hinterlands, but it's not for you. It's not yours. It's the forest equivalent of taxation without representation. So they would put that tree and all the things that were theirs, including a flag that said, appeal to heaven. Because when man is not doing what he should, you appeal to the faithful God, to the covenant God. You, you look over his head to find righteousness to be done. These were all very much Boston things. And, and they were rather uniquely. I mean, what I'm not describing here is a kind of generic Protestantism that you might find almost anywhere in America almost any time, even down to our own time. And I'm not describing the relatively watered down version of these things that you would find in another legacy of Boston and its hinterlands much later on in American history that we've talked before about on the show, and that is the public education system promoted especially by a man from Massachusetts, Horace Mann, where in the public education system you would take a dream that the Puritans had had, which is that everyone should have some modicum of education because he is a child of God and he is answerable to God and should be able to read his word. And you take that and then you expand it to the purposes of whatever you have for your ever-expanding democracy and you can go back to Lee Greenwood and look at the shots of big fields in places so far away from Boston it was unimaginable certainly in 1650. Not even stony ground where you'd have to pick all the stones out in order to plant a single thing, much less the three sisters, corn, beans and squash, but you could just plant corn everywhere as far as the eye could see. You'll see that in Lee Greenwood, you weren't supposed to see it in the beginning, that's too far from Boston. I'm not talking about all the things that happened afterward that probably were too far, certainly way too far to keep up anything, like even a half-covenanted society, such as Jonathan Edwards was displeased with, let alone a covenanted society. I'm talking instead not about the children or the grandchildren or the great-great-great-great-grand nephews of Boston, but of what it was meant to be, of this American Philippi, which was supposed to hold together because it was answerable to the same God, which could therefore pull off something like the Boston Tea Party because they could be united in a conspiracy for, <laughs> for in their mind, good things, certain together that they would be able to do in God's sight what was right. And anywhere that they or their descendants went, and you can go find Stuart Holbrook's book, Yankee Exodus, to back this up. Anywhere they went, one hallmark of them was that they knew that they were right. (laughs) As in the beginning, they had come here to be. Not always necessarily so confrontationally as the Plymouth crowd, but, but they knew that they were right. So what made these things go away? There were anxieties after the revolution and not least of all in Boston that, that things were getting too big, but there were also anxieties that things could not be governed. Their are anxieties specifically, and a man, you can read quite a bit by him. I think he's a little funnier than the Adamses and that is Fisher Ames, a descendant of, that's a, that's a solid early Boston name, Ames. That they were worried that, you know, if we don't have the right kind of people, and if we have set things up such that the great mass has to be pleased, and you'll notice that a covenanted society is is not at all necessarily, and, and almost certainly, it's not, it's not democratic. Because it relies on not only that everyone knows what the covenant is, but that everyone is held accountable to the covenant. So that has almost nothing to do with what the people want, per se. The voice of the people is decidedly not the voice of God. (laughs) The word of God, as interpreted by the ministers and applied by them as well as the magistrates, that, yes, that, we need to worry about, but the voice of the people, no, not necessarily. Ames was worried that a democracy would would inevitably corrupt all of these things, that it would further people's disinterest in religion, because it furthers an attitude of just not caring about what any authority of any kind says, but especially that it would corrupt what we would now call maybe the elite's what I called a little bit earlier, the aristocracy, the magistrates and the clergy, particularly the men who lead in war and in peace. And if you're worried about the clergy not leading in war, you should know that even in the Continental Army, which was of course, not just a New England army, the clergy were overwhelmingly congregational clergy from New England. That what would happen to that aristocracy to, and that word literally means government by the best, What would happen to them over time was that their institutions as well as they in themselves, their persons, their souls, would be corrupted. Because they would learn that the way, at least publicly, that you lead is not to tell people what God says or to press upon them the urgency of the hour. To press, as Massachusetts born Henry Knox pressed the Green Mountain Boys and the noble train of artillery to get the cannons (laughs) from the mountains, over the mountains, over the hills, over the Berkshires, into Boston to lay siege to the British, to run them out of this American Philippi. You can't force people to do things if they don't want to, right? Is that what would happen inevitably is that Leaders, we would call them very generically today, would have to pretend not to be men of God or to be men of great parts or men of great wisdom or men of great war making ability or whatever it was that they had been set forth to do. You would no longer have a a Noah Grant, the great grandfather of Ulysses S. Grant, leading anyone in a war against the Indians who were there and the stakes were you burn their village or they'll burn yours. That wouldn't exist anymore. That instead, everything would be defined by what was lowest and easiest. It's a little hard then when you read something like that from 1801, from 1797, not to believe in some kind of modern day prophecy. But are we talking about are we talking about modern day prophets, or are we just talking about looking at history? Later on, Boston would develop a very strong attachment to the notion of absolute human freedom. And time does not permit today, but I think that has something a little bit more to do with being Athens than it does with being Philippi. Because Boston secularized over time and Unitarianism came about. Weaning men not not only from their attachment to the Word of God, that actually took a while to happen in such in a place so so deeply Calvinistic, but weaning them also from their attachment simply to the idea of authority, especially God's over their lives. But they came to be attached in a, in a very a rather homogeneous, decided way to the idea of absolute human freedom. And although Ames had been concerned about what would happen that. Now that Boston was in a federal union, which was not governed from Boston. So unlike every other time, except certain interregna where Boston had been somehow temporarily governed directly by an Englishman instead of a new Englishman. Now in the American union in the federal union, Boston was going to be governed from Philadelphia or New York or in time, Washington district of Columbia and that therefore it could not govern itself, and it could not therefore be godly. The covenant was altogether gone away, right? Because uh, the people in charge of you, ultimately, and your sons, if we get into a war, they're not covenanted with you. So New England could keep, for a while, its state churches until the conflict over Unitarianism helped that to collapse in the 18 in 1818 and later in 1833 with Massachusetts but did it matter was it not always coming there's an index then of the loss of self-control whether you're into covenants at all or not in the fact that in time although all Boston wanted fugitive slaves from the south to be able either to live in Boston or to keep going north to get into Canada, particularly New Brunswick and and Upper Canada, what becomes Ontario. Although that's what Boston wanted, and that's what Boston increasingly was covenanted to do, it could not do it. That rather famously in the 1850s, a man who had fled there and lived there for years was discovered by his former owner or someone, a bounty hunter, There on behalf of his owner from Virginia and frog marched all the way through what we would now call downtown Boston or near the National Freedom Historic Trail onto a ship under the governance of Marines. And he would be taken back to slavery, despite what Boston wanted. You might wonder then, what was all that plantation for? What did it accomplish if it all went away? I mean, Harvard is not a training ground for Congregationalist missionaries anymore. And I'm not sure that Boston is particularly the home of a Yankee man anymore. But I hear a genuine old Yankee accent there, necessarily, maybe. But maybe it would just be somebody in for the day from somewhere else in New England. So what what remains if places change as much as they do. You could consider this, that perhaps you are in something, a time maybe a little bit more like 1629 than you are a time later. You're not necessarily in a time where you are going to have to face, although you should take a look at all the problems that were faced by the grandchildren of the planters and how they settled those and how they didn't and how the authority of the word of god gradually eroded and everything else with it but maybe you are maybe you are in a new time maybe there is a new philippi let alone a new boston maybe it is a time for planting or replanting a time a fresh time And it's possible that there's no one single example you could look back to and say, this is it, this is how to do it, this is what I'm going to do, I know it. But maybe there are lessons there. And maybe there was wisdom there. And maybe there was a hopefulness and an energy there that we rarely have. But we might, we might obtain, we might be given. So that when we hear a certain call, when a new world opens up to us, wherever and and however it might, we could answer when someone says to us, come over and help us. A Martyr's Death, The Hero's Life, the theme for the 10th Men's Gathering being held this year at Lakeview Villages on April 4th to 7th. We are thrilled to have secured Pastor Brian Wolfmuller as our main speaker this year. Join 150 Christian men to learn how the martyrs of the early Christian church still preach to us with their lives, their lips, and their blood. Arrive as early as Thursday for a special Bruising Cue session with Pastor Wolf Mueller, or stay as late as Monday to watch the full solar eclipse, which will be directly over the villages. Visit mensgathering.us for more details and to register. We hope you can join us at the 2024 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Are you tired of people saying that you must accept the crumbling of Christianity? Are you looking for a place that hasn't embraced the new normal? A church that isn't taking the decline of Christian culture, families, and congregations sitting down? Are you looking for reverent liturgy and biblical teaching that proclaims the mercy of God and instructs you in holy living? Then visit Mission of the Cross Lutheran Church in Cross Lake, Minnesota, where people come for the beautiful lakes, but they stay for the church, where we are reclaiming Christendom. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider, one that values life, no matter the stage, and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct e-care can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.